for a word of prayer. God, we thank you and we bless you for this day that you've made. And we've come to rejoice. And we've come to be glad in it. We give you praise, oh God, for your compassions that fail not and your mercies that are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How we honor you today for being faithful to us, even when we've been so unfaithful to you. We give you glory, we give you praise, because all we've needed, your hand hath provided. And we honor you. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, our comforter and our guide. Thank you for this wonderful aggregation of believers who have assembled in this place to worship you and to magnify you. We thank you for worship. We thank you for this weekend that celebrates the independence of our country. We pray your blessings on our nation. We pray your blessings on us even today. Now, God, would you speak to our hearts? I pray as the Apostle Paul now that you give me the utterance and boldness to speak to make known the mysteries of your gospel. I pray as the psalmist now that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. God, if there's a void in this place, would you fill it? If there's a pain in this place, would you heal it? If there's purpose in this place, would you reveal it? Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on us even now? And we give you praise and we give you glory in advance for it all belongs to you. Have your way, have your way, have your way. Have your way, God, and get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Let's thank God for our worship experience today. What a rich worship experience it's been. Certainly to Dr. Conway in his absence. Let's thank God for him. What a mighty man of valor and incredible leader. And then later, Jada, thank God for them and their family. We pray that they're refreshed during their time. Let's thank God for Pastor Matt. What an incredible leader. He is, and I salute you, man of God. All the campus passes into all of you. What a blessing it is to be here with you today. I want to get right into the Word of God today. There's a passage in the book of Romans, and the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, and thank God for your music ministry, your worship ministry, and the choir. What a pleasant surprise. They could have kept singing that a little longer. He's a lifter of my head, and I thank God that he is that to all of us. Uh, Romans chapter 12. And uh, I wanted to take a look at a familiar passage, King James Version. You'll find these words in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then I'll rewind to Romans eleven thirty six. But you see these words. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And Romans eleven thirty six says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. I want to talk for a few moments from this thought. Just consider this thought, giving God the glory. Why don't you just say it with me, giving God the glory. I'm so thankful to be here with you, and I was uh, on vacation myself celebrating my birthday this past weekend, and I'm so thankful to be here. Thank you. Praise the Lord. 
and uh, wanted to spend it here, and I'm so glad to be here with you. And, uh, and I've been thinking all weekend about a most recent birthday that uh, is very nostalgic for me. It's very nostalgic because this was the last birthday that all my siblings and I spent together prior to the death of my baby brother a few years ago at the age of 28, and my sister a couple of years ago at the age of 50. It was the last time all five of us were together. Uh, in honor of my birthday, very special. Thought about it this morning, very sentimental even now. Uh, my oldest sister prepared a, a meal for us in honor of my birthday. And when I arrived at my oldest sister's home, my older sister met me at the front door. And she said something that intrigued me. She said, brother, I said, yes. She said, I did not get you a gift this year for your birthday. And uh, I, I got to confess, confession is good for the soul. I was a little, I was a little taken aback, um, uh, specifically because I had just purchased her a gift for her birthday. And uh, y'all pray for me. God's not through me yet. And, uh, and a brother wanted some sense of sibling reciprocity, you know what I mean? And so, and so I began to inquire as to why she didn't get me a gift. Why didn't you get me a gift? And uh, she said this. She said, I didn't get you a gift because I was struggling with something. I said, well, what were you struggling with? She said, I was struggling with this. What do you give to somebody who seemingly has everything? I said, okay, that's cool. And, uh, <laughs> and she thought she had me, brother. I said, no, what, what do you give to somebody? I know she wasn't struggling. She just was being trifling. And, uh, <laughs> and so I, yeah, absolutely. So... So I had to become cap, the clapback king on her. I said, uh, uh, what do you give to somebody who seemingly has everything? You give them some more of what you think they seemingly have. That's a pretty good answer. Would you, would you agree with me? And uh, it was right there in that context that God sent me a pneumatological email straight from the uh, heavens uh, email machine. And I thought about another relationship that I have, but more specifically, the relationship that we all share with the God who is sovereign. Because in light of my sister's question slash statement, what do you give to somebody who seemingly has everything? I hear God say to us that you and I ought give God the glory. Romans eleven thirty six says, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. But right there, my sister's question slash statement came to bear because it made me wonder, what can we as fallible and finite creatures really give to God that God does not already possess? Just think about that for a moment. Can we really give God glory? How can we really give God glory when David calls him the king of glory? Paul refers to Christ as being the hope of glory. Another writer refers to God as being the God of all glory. So can we give God glory? If God is already the king of glory, Christ is the hope of glory, and God is the God of all glory, how can we give God glory? And then I thought about God in creation. When God knew in creation that at times throughout the course of human history that he would have various needs. And so God put into motion something that would facilitate those needs that God would periodically have. For example, God knew at times that he would need a word presented, a word presented to humanity. 
So God created the archangel whose name was Gabriel. Can the church say Gabriel? And Gabriel is that word angel. As a matter of fact, when God wanted to announce the birth of his own son in Bethlehem of Judea, he sent Gabriel to make that heavenly annunciation because Gabriel was the word angel. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when describing the rapture, Paul says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. It is believed that that voice of the archangel will be the voice of Gabriel to signify the impending return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because whenever God wanted a word, God would use Gabriel. But then God also knew at times that he would need warfare. So he created the archangel whose name was Michael. Can the church say Michael? And Michael was the warfare angel. The book of Jude tells us that when Moses died, that there was a physical battle over his remains. That battle was between Satan and his angels and Michael and his angels. And Michael took the body of Moses and became a, an angelic pallbearer and buried the remains of Moses in a place where only God is aware of. Why? Because whenever God wanted a word, God used Gabriel. Whenever God wanted warfare, God would use Michael. When you read the book of Daniel, chapter 10, during a time of captivity, Daniel prayed to God for 21 days. And after a 21-day period of fasting and prayer, Daniel was still waiting an answer from God. And after 21 days, Gabriel showed up. And Gabriel says to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, around that 10th through 14th verse, Daniel, from the first day you prayed, I want you to know that God heard your prayer. He says, but because I was trying to come from a heavenly realm, uh, one of Satan's chief emissaries in a region of Persia withstood me. That was a battle in the heavenly realm. And I couldn't get you the answer because I'm the word angel. But what God did, he sent Michael, the warfare angel, to engage in combat with this demonic realm to release me so I could bring you your answer. Here's why. Because whenever God wanted a word, God would use Gabriel. Whenever God wanted warfare, God would use Michael. But then God also knew at times that he would need worship and desire worship. And so God created the archangel whose name was Lucifer. Can the church say Lucifer? Lucifer. And Lucifer, uh, ironically, was over the praise, worship, and music departments of heaven. Uh, but instead of worshiping God, Lucifer wanted to be worshipped. And God had to evict and excommunicate Lucifer from the heavenlies. And God kicked him out of the heavenly realm. And now he came to earth and he's the devil. He's now Satan. He has imps. But Satan, Lucifer, was never replaced by one individual to have the sole responsibility for worship. Now, Gabriel is still going to bring forth the word. Michael, still existentially and eschatologically, is going to be engaged in warfare. But God never replaced Lucifer with one person. And this is why John chapter 4, verse 23 says that the father is seeking. The Father is seeking worshipers. The Father is seeking somebody 
who would be willing to do what Lucifer would not do, and that was to worship God. And this is the reason, brothers and sisters, why Satan hates you and I whenever we praise and worship God. Because whenever we praise, whenever we worship God, we literally remind the devil of the job that he got fired from. And um, I, I know it's the 4th of, July, 4th of July weekend, but I just wish I had a few people who would just take a second or two and help me make the devil mad for a moment. I mean, every time you clap your hands, you make the devil mad. Every time you shout, Hallelujah, you make the devil mad. Every time you say, Lord, I love you, you make the devil mad. Come on, tell them, don't get mad at us. We will bless the Lord at all times. And his praise shall continually be in our mouths. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Because, because the, 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 the reality is this. The only time when we create environments in the earth realm that remind God of what he is perpetually accustomed to in the heavenlies is when we give God worship, when we give God glory. For up in heaven do the cherubims and seraphims 24 hours a day bow in obeisance to the one who sits on the throne. So God's accustomed to worship and praise and that's why he inhabits the praises of his people because we make God comfortable in the earth when we create an environment that reminds him of what he receives perpetually in the heavens so Paul says for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory that word there in Greek is the word doxa doxa it means reverential adoration it means a place of preeminence it means an elevated posture. Doxa is where we get the English word doxology from. A word of reverence, a word of praise. Paul says that God is due doxa. He's due reverential adoration. And because of that, he says, I beseech you therefore, my beloved brethren. He says in effect that if you and I are going to glorify God, then I need to give you a rubric or a template by which you and I can glorify God. So I beseech you, therefore, my beloved brethren. That word beseech, the Greek word is there. That word is parakaleo. Para meaning alongside. The verb kaleo meaning to call. It is a military summons. Parakaleo. Whenever those commanders in the ancient world were preparing for battle, they would issue a parakaleo for all their soldiers to come and to engage in combat. Here Paul uses a military term, parakaleo, to call for every soldier of the Lord Jesus to engage in warfare that is not carnal. He says, if God is going to be glorified in our lives, there are four major principles that we must embody. The first thing he says to, to those of us who want to give God glory is there must be, get this now, the upward presentation. I want you to sit with it, the upward presentation, the upward presentation. Listen to what he says in verse 1. 
I beseech you therefore, my beloved brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. I want you to give this vertical offering as an oblation offering unto God. I want you to make God the audience of one and present to God your essence, not just your anatomy, but all of who you are must be poured out in an upward vertical dimension to God because God is the one who seeks to be glorified, who desires, who deserves to be glorified. He says, I want you to give this upward presentation. Here's why. It is responsive to his mercies. He says, I beseech you therefore, my beloved brethren, it is by the mercy, I urge you, I command you, I implore you based on the mercies of God. Now this blessed me significantly because Paul says, I'm imploring you, I'm urging you, uh, I'm obligating you based upon, listen, the mercies of God. This blessed me because often our, our Christian nomenclature, we say things like, Lord, have mercy. Paul says, you really missed it. It's not, Lord, have mercy. He says, mercy is singular. It's not mercy. It's mercies. That word is octiermos. It is plural. More than one. It says, no, don't say, Lord, have mercy. Don't in your mind ever fathom that God is the God of mercy. God is the God of mercies. It's not singular. God is too inexhaustible to be relegated by singularity. It's not mercy. It's mercies. It's anything that has been withheld from you that you rightly deserve that is a type of mercy. It's not just one. Because all of us in this room and those of us who are watching online, all of us are in need of manifold mercies. And I'm so grateful that whatever type of mercy you need, we have a God who will supply. Can I be honest with you? There was a time, let me be honest. I want you to be honest. There was a time for some of us 25, 30 years ago, uh, 35, 40 years ago, for, for some of us, maybe a little longer. Let's be honest. There was no way in the world that you would be in church on a 4th of July weekend on time at 9 a.m. in the morning. Am I talking to anybody who can admit that? As a matter of fact, some of you, not everybody, because I know some of you were born with the Bible in one hand and him book in the others, but there's some of us who just would have been getting home at 9 a.m. Does anybody remember going to uh, the concert or going to, in college, going to homecoming, whether it was Texas A&M or the University of Texas or Arkansas, Oklahoma, Grambling, or whether it was TCU or Southern University or Florida A&M or Howard University or Spillman or Morehouse? Some of you remember going to the party, going to the step show of your favorite fraternity and passing the communion a little too much. Come on, talk to me, somebody. Am I talking right? And got full in your inebriation and your intoxication. But somehow, as drunk as you were, you made it back home to your apartment or your dorm room safely. Do you know what it was? Not because you were a coherent driver, not because of dexterity of your senses, but the only reason why you didn't get a DUI because God gave you a drunk mercy. Come on, I'm talking to somebody who's been there, done that, had, you've been there. You have some moments in your life. You have not always been where you are now. 
and you ought to be able to give God. But there are some others of you who dated somebody in high school and college, and you thought the sun rose on him. Oh, you were in love with Melissa. You were in love with Junebug, and Junebug left you, and he married Faye May. You Come on, you remember, you remember Junebug, don't you? The one who had the long jerry curl and had the Jordache jeans and had the members-only jacket. Come on, talk to me 35 years ago. And yet he broke your heart, and you thought life was over 35 years ago. But you went to your 35th high school class reunion, and the first person you saw was Junebug. And he had that same members-only jacket, those same Jordache jeans, same Jerry Curl with three teeth in his mouth. And you fell down in the midst of them and said, Lord, I thank you for what you provide and what you prevent. Am I talking to somebody who can look back over the past chapter of your life and give God praise for what didn't work out in your life? And if you've ever received one of the mercies of God, you all give God the upward presentation because God is worthy. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for what God provides and what God prevents because if it had not been for the mercies of God, I'm the last person who should be preaching to anybody, but he's a God who is rich in mercy. Give him praise and give him glory. Hallelujah. He says, I want you to give him the upward presentation. He says, as a matter of fact, because I want you to become, this bless me, a living sacrifice. I need to dig that just for a second because it's very powerful for me. A living sacrifice. That Greek word is zao, living, where we get the word zoology from. The word uh, sacrifice, thusea. I want you to give God a, a zao, a living sacrifice. This is interesting. It's different. Because in the Old Testament, they brought to God what the first century Greeks would have called the akpathisko thusea, which is a dead sacrifice. Some of you Bible readers or vacation Bible school students remember in Genesis 22, God told Abraham, take your son Isaac up on Mount Moriah to offer him as the akpathisko thusea, the dead sacrifice. So Abraham and his son Isaac climbed Mount Moriah with the wood, with the rope, with the knife. Abraham builds the altar and gets ready to offer his own son as an akpathisko thusea unto Yahweh. But before killing his own son to offer him as a sacrifice, God says, Abraham, now I know you love me. I can trust you. I was just testing you. Release your son and look in the thicket. There's a ram there. There's a lamb there. I want you to get the ram, get the animal, and kill the animal instead. Because in the Old Testament, God only accepted what they call the akpathisko thusea. One day down in Egypt, God told Moses, I want you to tell everybody in Egypt that they need to kill a lamb. Because tonight, a death angel is passing through Egypt. And as a part of the sacrifice, I want you to kill the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And when I see the lamb on the doorpost, the death angel will pass over that home. But if the blood has not been applied to the doorpost, the death angel is going to go in and kill the firstborn son. Why? Because God needed the apothesco thusea to be offered in the Old Testament. And so the people would get the pigeons and turtles and new lambs and take them to the priest to offer as a sacrifice unto God because in the Old Testament God only accepted the apothesco thusaeus. But now Paul, in this text, because we live under grace and live under the dispensation, not the law, but of Christ 
and the blood and the veil of the temple was rent in twain. Paul says, don't you give God an apoxisco through say a dead sacrifice. He says, now God wants a living and God deserves a living. Whatever you do for God in your worship, in your giving, in your living, in your service, don't you give God anything that's dead. God deserves something that's alive. Oh, my goodness. When God rode by this morning in his golden chariot, chauffeured by the invisible winds, and God dispatched his darling angels to touch our bodies with the finger of love, and our eyes, our came open to greet the virgin light of a brand new day, and you rest under the canopy of his benevolence and favor and grace. How dare us come into God's house to give God something that's dead. We all give God a live praise. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, let everything that have breath praise ye. Every time you come into these doors, you ought to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Enter into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name for the Lord is good. Oh, you ought to give him a live praise. As a matter of fact, when you come next Sunday, before you look at, take your seat, look at the row. If somebody's sitting there and just holler at them. Rah! And if nobody hollers back, don't sit there. Find you another seat. Find, sit with somebody who's got some praise. As a matter of fact, when they shout holly, you ought to shout hallelujah. Am I talking to somebody who's alive today? And I want God to experience the life of my worship. That's the upward presentation. But then Paul says, listen, and once we give God the upward presentation, he says, secondly, we need to have backwards conformation. Not confirmation, conformation. Backwards from conformation. It's right there. And be not conformed to this world. That means don't assimilate into the spirit of the age. What a relevant message for Paul. It was Paul's ultimate desire to get to Rome. Because at the first century, Rome was the citadel of the seasons. Rome was the darling of the human race. Rome was that place where Virgil sang and Cicero played. It was the desire of Paul to get to Rome, to get the gospel to Rome. Because Rome had typically been filled with paganism and pantheism and polytheism. By the time of the first century, the gospel had reached Rome. But yet... The problem here is that uh, Paul could no longer decipher or distinguish between the saints in Rome and the ain'ts in Rome. The spirit of the age had blurred the lines between those who were for God and those who were against God. So Paul says, don't just go upwards with your presentation, but go backwards from conforming to the spirit of the age. If you let me put a quarter in the meter and park there for a second, I think this is very, very important because unfortunately, when you look at the spirit of our age and the spirit of what's happening here in America, my heart has been broken by the division. My heart has been broken by families who have literally fallen out over political ideology. You'd be surprised the number of friends who've lost friendships because we've allowed political perspectives and and, and we've allowed uh, uh, just all types of, of issues that have nothing to do with eternity to separate us. The fragmentation, the oppression, the racism, the division, 
over ideology has caused us to not even love one another. Law, we've, seen to, we've seen to have lost all sense of civility and, and nobility and respect even in our differences. I, I'm concerned that even on tomorrow, that even as we talk about the United States of America, it seems that our country is more divided than it has been even since the days of the Civil War over things that aren't even eternal. And I just came to say to us that we should not allow the spirit of the age, this diabolic, toxic, political perspective to cause us to miss our most important reality, and that is the gospel is what saves. And I know, I know people have their hearts for politics. I get it. You're, you're from Texas. I'm from Georgia. I get it. But people have now begun to wear their political perspectives as if it's the most preeminent thing in our lives. But I come to tell you, I, the hope of our world is not if you represent an elephant or a donkey. The hope of our world is based on a lamb who shed blood for the sins of the world. And I wish we would get beyond the elephant and the donkey and start to lift up the lamb, the lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. Am I talking to anybody who realizes that when Bush and Biden and Trump and Obama are off the scenes, there still will be one who superintends the earth, the moon, and the stars. His sweep is from everlasting to everlasting. Yes, vote your political perspective, but realize that we have a home somewhere that's not based on political ideology it's based on the blood of Jesus Christ and what can wash away my sins what can make me whole again nothing not your political party not your political pact but the blood of Jesus am I talking to somebody who still loves Jesus if you love Jesus clap your hands I love you Jesus I love you Jesus I love you Jesus We've got to be careful that we don't allow the spirit of age to blind us to what is primary. Yeah, vote your conscience, but pol politics are not primary. They're secondary. Don't let the spirit of age get you. i got to be honest with you. I, I had a moment the other day, Pastor Matt, and I was very discouraged. You know, my wife loves these big SUV, SUVs, and uh, she carries my son around this basketball team. She's a team mom, and I, I only get a chance to drive it when it's time to wash it or put gas in it, and, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I went to the pump uh, uh, last week to put gas in her SUV, and when that thing got to $130, I was so confused. I didn't know whether to chop it or cuss it. I didn't know what to do. I was just so confused at the pump. And then the Holy Spirit convicted me and said, I'm like, I was complaining. The Holy Spirit said, listen to me. If gas gets to be $2 or 6 I'm still going to take care of my child. There's so much anxiety in the land and depression. Uh, our counseling center at our church, our numbers have shot through the roof. Teleconferences and people taking medications because the anxiety and depression of the pandemic has affected the emotional and mental health of people. Couples are struggling because the anxiety is at its all-time high. People are struggling. But can I tell you something? Do not let the spirit of age make you forget about the God who is always provided. <laughs> this is not the first time we've struggled. 
Can, can I be honest with you? We've, we've gone through moments before. We've gone through struggles before. Gas prices have been high before. We've had wars and rumors of wars before. I'm sure this is not the first time you've been broke. But when you look back over the past chapters of your life and see how God has provided for you in times past, can somebody understand if he took care of me before, he'll take care of me again. And I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. If you believe that, give God praise and glory right there. I'm not, I don't care what happens in the world. I'm a child of God. I'm an heir and a joint heir, and God will take care of his children. So that's an upward presentation. Go backwards from confirmation. Don't let the spirit of the age, no matter how devastating, depressing, or diabolic, shift who you are. Thirdly, there must be the inward transformation. Listen to what he says, and be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transform, Greek word metamorphio. It's where we get the English word metamorphosis from. That word renewing is the word for renovation. He said it's in the present perfect imperative in Greek, which means that every day I get up and you get up, our minds must be in a state of metamorphosis and renovation. Ooh. That every day we get up, the mind must constantly be in a state a metamorphosis and renovation. The picture is very beautiful. It is a, the picture of, in Greek, the word picture, it is a picture of a house. You and I know that as houses get older, they're subject to decay, dilapidation. Houses are subject to asbestos and termites. And periodically, a house has to be renovated to keep it vibrant. Paul says that's the picture of the mind, the noose. The mind is like an old house. That daily is subject to adversarial asbestos and treacherous termites. Would seek to get into your mind to destroy it. And once the mind is destroyed, every part of you is destroyed. That's why the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 23 says, For as a man thinks, no, he didn't say as a man thinks, so is he. He says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, what is he talking about? It's in Hebrew, he's trying to show that the head and heart are connected. That it's one singular entity, as a man thinks in his heart. Head and heart, one entity. That the head and heart are united. That's the Hebrew perspective. So etymologically, he's saying that the head and heart are one. I understand that etymologically, but biologically, that's not possible. As a man or woman thinks in their heart, so is he or she. That's a biological impossibility. Why? Ninth grade, tenth grade science. Because the heart doesn't think. There is no consciousness in your heart. The heart just pumps blood. All thinking is in the cerebrum. The cerebral cortex, the thalamus, the hypothalamus, pineal gland, medulla oblongata. <laughs> right? So all thought is here. As a matter of fact, you can put your hand on a hot stove and your hand won't know it's hot. Unless your brain sends a signal to your hand and say, fool, you got your hand on a hot stove, right? <laughs> because all thought comes here. So here's what I believe he's saying. I want to break it down. He's saying, so as a person thinks psychologically, in their hearts, cardiologically, so is he anthropologically. As a person thinks, that's where it begins. In their hearts, that's how we behave. So is he or she, that's what we become. 
So our psychology affects our cardiology, which equates in our anthropology. So we become the sum total of what we thought. That's why Descartes put it, cognito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So it's no surprise if my mind has mess on it, I will inevitably become messy. If junk is on your mind, don't be surprised when your life starts to smell like junk. Because we are not what we feel, we are what we think. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and bringing into captivity every thought. He says you've got to put handcuffs on some thoughts. Help me, help me here, help me. Oh, he says in Philippians 4, for whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are pure, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your heart and your mind. So guess what? Can't nobody blow your mind if you got your mind on Jesus. Because Isaiah 26.3 says, if you keep your mind stayed on him, he will keep you in. And I wish I had somebody who didn't mind taking a moment to give God glory and praise for keeping you in your right mind. Oh, some of us have gone through some things that should have taken our minds. Some of us have faced some adversities that should have made us put our, our feet, our shoes on our head, and our socks on our hands. But because God kept your mind, you can be here right now giving God the praise and giving God the glory. Thank you. Oh, it's possible for your mind to snap just like this. But God is a God who kept your mind. The question I want to ask us is, what's on your mind? Because if the enemy can control your mind, he can control you. So today, have an inward transformation. You decide what you're going to think. You decide what you're going to focus on. You decide what you're going to be conscious about. You decide if it's, if it's taking my peace, if it's costing me my peace, it's too expensive. You make the decision today, God, I will keep my mind on you, on victory. I will keep my mind on reconciliation. I will keep my mind not on my faults or my vulnerabilities. I will keep my mind not on my shame, not on my mistakes, but I will keep my mind on you because if I keep victory on my mind and keep you on my mind. I believe right now that transformation, redemption and healing can be, come on, give God praise for your mind. Listen. I got to move. I got to move. I got to move, but transformation has to come on the inside. God, keep my mind. Keep my mind. Keep my mind. Transform my mind. Transform. When I was playing football, the cheerleaders had to cheer. Elevate your mind. And get yourself together. I came to tell you whatever you had on your mind that's been diabolic and diametric to your victory. Elevate your mind and get yourself together. Set your mind and your affection on things which are above. Plato says that man has a hierarchy of being. And whatever's at the top of that pyramid is what has your affection and your attention. What's at the top of your pyramid mentally? God help me. They have the mind of you. Let this mind be in you.
which was also in Christ Jesus. Help my mind. Listen, the upward presentation, backwards from confirmation, the inward transformation. And one more thing, and I'm taking my seat. Once we've given God the upward presentation, go backwards from confirmation, the inward transformation, fourthly, and finally, that must be the outward demonstration. It's right there. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That word there is thelema in Greek. It means the plan and priorities of God. It means the very, per I want you to prove what God's will is. Now that can be translated, translated two ways. As a verb that you and I should actively prove the will. Vacation Bible school, young people, verb, proving the will. Men's conference, men coming out to prove the will. Marriage conference, coming out to prove the small groups, worship, Bible study. I'm, I'm proving, I'm actively trying to prove what the will is. God's good will, God's perfect will, God's acceptable will. I need to prove what it is. I need to pursue it. I need to ascertain what the will is. That's the verb. But then... But the best way to translate this is not from the verb, but the noun. Verb, actively do it. Noun, become it. I'm finished. So once you and I have proven, verb, the will, then we become proof, noun, of what the will is. That we become living proofs of what the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God is. Become proof. Let me come this way now as I close. A few years ago, a man in California named Michael Niedow, N-E-D-O-W, he filed um, litigation against the Ninth District there in California uh, because he is a former minister of some sect. He's, an, he's, a, he's a doctor. He's also an attorney. But he filed litigation because he's now an atheist. He filed litigation against the Ninth District in California because... He wants to delete the phrase one nation under God from the, from the Pledge of Allegiance. That was only added in 1954 during President Eisenhower's administration. He says, and since I'm an atheist, my daughter should never have to recite anything in a public school that has a reference to God. I, you have infringed upon my constitutional rights Freedom of and freedom from religion. I'm a taxpayer, and I don't want my daughter to hear anything about God. And do you know he won the state case? They agreed with him that he was correct. The only reason why action didn't take place because it has federal implications, because public schools are federally funded. And so he went to the Supreme Court to go before them to delete one nation under God from the Pledge of Allegiance. And the only reason why they threw his claim out was because they said uh, because he didn't have legal custody of his daughter. But now he's going to find some other atheists and some other agnostics to come back and even Satanists to come back to file litigation because he wants to get rid of one nation under God. Then he says he's also going after money because the back of your dollar bill says in God. We trust. And if there's a separation of church and state, why does the government print, print something that says God? He's going after money. And, and some, of, some, uh, some attorneys and those in the legal field are saying, we don't know what we're going to do with this guy because there may be some validity to his litigation. 
Well, a few months ago, somebody interviewed this clown, I mean this fool, I mean this man, excuse me, that's bad. Well, the Bible does say a fool is in his heart, there's no God. Somebody, somebody interviewed him and asked him, they asked him, why are you so adamant about getting rid of God? And this is what he said. If people of the faith community, if God is who you faith people say he is, you believers, if God is who you say he is, I got one question. Where's the proof? Can't put God on the crucible of experimentation and investigation. Can't observe him with the five senses. He says, if somebody from the faith community can offer me proof about this God and his existence, then maybe I'll stop my case. But I won't stop until I see some proof. Well, one, one community, I don't know when that, when that next court case is going to convene, but maybe we all bust up in there and... Uh, and uh, I want you to go get some of your, our cousins from Oak Cliff and some from Plano. I need, I need, I need some people who don't mind uh, uh, being hood and holy. And I'll, I'll, and, I'll, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll go to the east side of Atlanta and we all put on black and tie black bandanas around our heads and we find that Supreme Court room and bust up in there. Hey, we heard that you were looking for proof. That God is who God says he is. We heard you looking for, you were looking for proof that God will do what God said he will do. If you're looking for proof, we're right here. We are proof. We are evidence that God is real and God will do. You know what? When I was, when I was in college, I was pre-law. And in pre-law, we have mock trials. And mock trials were to get us ready for law school and for the courtroom. And you know what, I just got an idea. I want to turn this place, imagine with me that we're no longer in one community in Plano. Imagine this room is that D.C. courtroom. I'm closing here, but I want you to imagine that we're in a trial. I want you to imagine today that God is on trial. Mr. Nidow is the plaintiff, God is the defendant. He's accused our God of being an abstract metaphysical ambiguity, a figment of a gullible imagination. Then the, I want you to imagine that the cherubims are the, are the justices. Imagine the 24 elders of the jurors and the alternative jurors. God is the defendant. And since I'm here and on got this stage, let me be God's defense attorney. But here's what I can't defend God if I don't have any evidence. So when this court case convenes and they call me to represent my client, God, I'm going to offer five exhibits, exhibits A through E, that would authenticate and confirm and validate that my God is guilty of being God, of being good, and doing what God says he will do. Are y'all ready? Yes. Who are you? Your honors, I'm E. Dewey Smith from Atlanta, and I brought with, some, with me some exhibits from Texas. And these exhibits from the DFW, they are going to authenticate and prove that my God is guilty of being God. Your honors, may I offer into evidence Exhibit A. Listen, and when I offer into ex evidence Exhibit A, I need you to stand, remain standing, if this fits your context, and just shout, I'm proof, I'm evidence. Y'all got it? All right, listen, your honors, Exhibit A. These are the people who've had ailments. They've been sick in their bodies. But my client was Jehovah Rapha. My, my client was a healer. And they can stand and testify. He was wounded for my transgressions, bruised by iniquities, with the chastisement of my peace, and with his stripes we're here. I need exhibit A to stop. I'm proof. Y'all keep standing. Exhibit B, your honors. These are the people who've been broke before. They've been so broke they couldn't pay attention. But they can testify my client was Jehovah Jireh. 
My client was a provider. I didn't exhibit B to stand up and shout, I'm proof, I'm evidence. Exhibit C, Your Honor, these are the folk who should have been crazy by now. But they can testify my client kept them in their right minds. Exhibit C, standing shot, I'm proof. Exhibit D, these are people who've been depressed, uh, gone through divorce, faced death, but they can testify, can't nobody? Woo! Do me like Jesus. Somebody said, I'm proof. Exhibit E, Your Honor, these are the people who have some enemies, but they can testify, fret not thyself because of evildoers and no weapon formed against me shall be able to prosper. Somebody saying, I'm proof. I'm evidence. I'm taking my seat, but look at a neighbor. Say, neighbor, if you want to see proof of God being God, look no further because I am a living testimony. Could have been dead should have been dead but I can testify that we've been made endure for the night